Chapter Thirteen of Murder at St. Denis by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. I ain't telling, Blanche insisted doggedly. It was evening, and she was humped on a high stool beside Marmion in the laboratory, where she had been for the past half hour, ever since Sister Judy left for her rest period before going on night call. I ain't telling nobody where I found that paper, whatever it was. I told you, I didn't say nothing to the sheriff. I'm not. I know, not getting yourself into trouble, Marmion said with an exasperated sigh. Look, Blanche, I only asked you once, and you said you wouldn't tell me, so I believe you. Now will you please be quiet so I can get this job of matching done? I don't want to be here all night. Blood is blood, ain't it? Huh, said Marmion. The telephone rang. She went to answer it. Hi, Sam greeted her, and her heart turned to flip-flop. How's stuff? Not bad. Congratulations on your story, Sam. Thanks. It kept me away from the hospital today. I dasn't set foot in the sheriff's beat. I wanted to, though. You did, Sam? Marmion glowed. Sure did. I wanted to ask you what you meant by Cassidy choking to death. Why wasn't it more like smothering? Why would he gag? That's worried me. What a pity she snapped. So Sam couldn't come to the hospital because he was afraid of the sheriff, and if he had braved the perils, it would have been merely to get another story. I'm afraid you'll have to get your information from someone else, she added coldly. Goodbye, Sam. Oh, now, listen, I didn't mean. She broke the connection with her finger, leaving the receiver against her ear. After a few seconds, she listened again. Sam was protesting, in very satisfactory anguish. And then, in a tiny pause, she heard the unmistakable sound of a receiver going down. Not Sam's. He was still talking. Someone was listening on another extension in the hospital. Gee, you're mean to him, Blanche remarked. Softly, Marmion dropped the receiver onto the hook. Why should she feel a blast of raw cold in the overheated little room? The dark gray window was tight shut. Two stories above ground, safe from prying fingers. Come on and get this stuff done, if you're not going to talk to him, Blanche urged. I want to get upstairs. Why don't you go ahead? I'm scared. Look, you got two Johnsons here. Is that poor guy ever going to have a bill? It isn't the same family. I wish you'd go, Blanche, honestly. But Blanche remained. She was not, she insisted, getting herself into trouble. Marmion, concerned with her own frightened thoughts, worked quickly. She had said nothing to Sam that would be of any consequence. How could it matter, then, that someone had overheard the pointless conversation? Even in the security of the crow's nest, Marmion could not relax. Eloise had not come up, although it was nearly eight. Throwing herself on the bed, she tried to face her apprehensions and reason them away. The sheriff had been here today. He had listened to her story— seen the ransacked room, talked with Eloise, as he had with everyone else, and apparently seen nothing alarming in the similarity of names. So why be concerned? Think about Sam, instead, perfidious Sam. A little determination had scared him away on that first day, when she had pretended she thought him to be a blood donor. Blood? Marmion closed her eyes tight. She had just set out a bottle before coming upstairs. R.H. negative for Lynn's Jimmy. But was it negative she had left ready for Lynn? Or, in the confusion of listening to Blanche's chatter, had she inadvertently taken R.H. positive? 
For a minute she lay there, thinking, only one way to be sure, go down to the lab and look. Wearily, Marmion sat up, swinging her feet around to find her shoes. Lynn might notice the mistake, if there had been one, but she might not. It wasn't good to take a chance, and the trip to the lab would be very quick. She was not even afraid when she started past the rooms. Ellie was up here. She could hear her talking to Philippa. Silly to feel relieved. The laboratory was opposite the stairs to the crow's nest. Marmion switched on the lights in the small passage, hurried through it with only a glance at the dark x-ray lab. Her own workroom looked cozy tonight, the white walls gleaming, Sister Judy's little footstools neatly shoved out of the way. She glanced at the bottle, saw she actually had made a mistake. In a minute she would find the right one. She sat down at the desk and laid her hand on the telephone. Really, it would be only decent to call Sam, let him know she wasn't always a witch with a temper. On the other hand, a short period of squirming never did a young man any harm. Tomorrow she would telephone him. That would be time enough. Marmion didn't realize she had sat thinking of Sam for ten minutes. She was faintly smiling when she arose, went to the refrigerator, found a bottle with the correct type for Jimmy, and took it out for labeling. And then, backing against the door to close it, she caught a glimpse of the passage. It was dark. She had left the light on when she came in. Had Sister Polycarp flicked off the switch? But Sister would have seen the bright lab, then, and come to investigate. The red flagon was cold in her hand, but Marmion was aware of no sensation but terror. She was not alone. No one was in the room, to be sure, but out in the black little passage there was a gentle unrest of breathing. Sister Polycarp would not stand out there, just beyond the barrier of the wall. Panic beat in Marmion's throat. She would scream. Someone would hear her. But before she could make a sound, the lights went out in the laboratory. Not even a hand had been visible, because the switch was on the wall in the passage, convenient for a person entering at night and lighting the way before him, but not convenient for the one who stood half-fainting against the cool door of the refrigerator, remembering how like the lung that smooth enamel felt in clutching an ice-cold bottle and chilled palms. She could hear someone moving now, around the wall, slowly, breathing softly. The window was gradually becoming a gray rectangle, masked by snow, and against the grayness something moved. Marmion screamed, but even in her own ears the scream amounted to nothing. Miss Bacon, at the chart desk down the hall, did not hear her. The block grew, padding out all but tiny slivers of the window. Then even the slivers were gone and Marmion felt the warmth of a human body, and heard a long intake of breath, as if the intruder gathered strength for a blow. No, no, the girl choked. In panic, to get away from that warm, breathing thing, she plunged aside. She tripped over one of Sister Judy's footstools, and she fell and lay still. The sheriff, heading into Gopher Gulch at a speed that would not have been reckless on a dry road, held his car to the highway with absent-minded skill. Where Pussyfoot's favorite bridge spanned the Black Creek, he turned sharply up toward the ghost town, clasped between the hills. He was too preoccupied to see, as Mr. Wilkins had, the clean beauty of wet snow on the false-fronted saloon, kind beauty that made the saloon and the gulch mysterious rather than vacant. The car slewed on the turn, the rear swung across the road like something dangling on a stick, and with a jarring thump came to rest against a snowy hummock in the ditch. So I'm stuck. The sheriff muttered as he let the clutch out and in, trying to rock a wheel hold. 
He gave it up after a minute and climbed out. Not too bad a break that the hummock was there. Without it, he'd have careened clear back to the highway. Flipping on his collar, he started up the road. A few lighted windows glowed orange, but not the right ones. He had expected darkness in Charity Chapel, but Mr. Wilkins' house should be a light. The hour was early, 7.30 or so. Yet, if it had been midnight, the sheriff would have come straight along and routed the old man out of bed. When you had been smitten by a burst of perception, when all you needed to tie up your case was identification of the suspect, then regardless of the hour, you would seek out the one who could establish the identity. Murderers and their hunters don't wait for morning. He tramped up to the small house and pummeled on the door. It's the sheriff, sir. I'd like to see you for a minute. There was no reply. No shuffling of an old man arising from bed. The gulch was so still that the large wet flakes could be heard landing. The officer knocked again, then tried the knob. The door swung open, and he turned his flash inside. Even before he saw that there was no one at home, he felt the chill as if the fire had gone out long ago. Strange. The preacher was no great hand for being out in the snowfall. Why should he be away tonight, when of all times he must be tired to death? A white dog barked and wagged out from between the houses, as the sheriff stood undecided in the road again. No tracks led away. The small dents the dog made, the man's own large plowing, were all that broke the snow. The chapel was dark. Where to turn next? That was the question. What would be the use of storming into St. Dennis and declaring his case to be solved, when he still could not identify the evildoer? Through the afternoon, the feelers he had sent out for information had been paying off, one by one, building his case to a climax, and now it appeared that the climax had fizzled to a cold ash. All he had accomplished, by driving so impetuously, to go for Gulch, was to get his car stuck in the snow and keep company with a roaming dog. The dog had been leaping in circles around his new friend, throwing the snow high as he burrowed through it. His last circuit had taken him close to the chapel. Suddenly he stiffened his legs, sliding deep into a drift. The hair rose down his back, his neck stretched, and slowly, one stalking step after another, he crept to the chapel porch. His low growl was a warning and a summons. The door was open a crack. The dog did not like what was inside. The sheriff caught him in the beam of his flashlight, but the animal was not distracted. One paw raised, his nose only a foot away from the dark crack, he crouched there and growled deep in his throat. The light fell from the man's loosened fingers, and the next thing he knew he was on his knees in the snow, hunting. He had to have the flash. No sense in shaking like this. The old preacher had simply come out of the chapel and neglected to close the door tightly, and the wind had blown it open. He got up, brushed some of the snow off his clothes, turned on the light, and strode to the porch. "'All right, Buster,' he said. "'One side with you.' The dog backed a slow step. A wave of snow had curled in through the crack, a small dune out of which an aspen stick protruded. The dune did not reach Mr. Wilkins' feet. The old man sat in his chair with the dingy cushions. He must have sat down in daylight, for he had not turned on the lamp beside him, and he had been looking at something— a picture lying under the hand in his lap. He was wearing his overcoat and overshoes. His head lay against the chair back, and his eyes were closed. He was ready for a journey, but he had already gone. The sheriff touched him only once. At the touch, fury skimmed away the dread that had come with him across the road. How dared she do this thing? 
His wrath was as cold as Mr. Wickham's flesh. Harmless, mild old man, but not harmless to the one he could have identified as Cardinal's daughter. And this last act would not protect her. Somewhere in the world there would have to exist someone else who could do what the preacher had been denied. And I'll find him, the sheriff promised solemnly, if I have to walk after him barefooted to the ends of the earth. I'll find him. He turned the light away from Mr. Wilkins' peaceful face, and the beam fell upon the picture. Eagerly, he bent down to look. The picture was one of the types sometimes taken as a news shot for a feature story. It was a group of people around a gambling table, four men and one woman. The woman was nearest to the camera, and her charm had not faded with the dulling of the old print. She was beautiful, not young, not smiling, her eyes narrowed in supercilious amusement. Her red hair had photographed dark. The picture of the mother was more like the daughter than the two could be in real life. The sheriff did not straighten for a long moment. Then he gently disengaged the picture. Mr. Wilkins had framed it. For some reason, he had prized it. You've done it, Mr. Wilkins. She didn't stop you. Bully for you. A small doubt struck him. The old man's heart might have been unable to stand the strain of the walk through the snow after the cumulative excitement of Cassidy's death. But when there had been two murders, and Mr. Wilkins had been about to point the finger at the one who was Cardinal's daughter, he turned away quickly. The dog's eyes shone like iridescent grapes. The man kicked out the snow and closed the door. The dog trotted at his heels as he crossed the road to Mr. Wilkins' forsaken house. Dr. Hamlin, riding up the gulch on horseback, saw the car in the ditch where the sheriff had left it, but he did not stop. Guiding his horse as best he could, he held the blanket-wrapped child with arms that were numb. He would be in no shape to operate tonight, but King would do it, if necessary, and they might be safe in waiting until morning. A blood test would tell the tale. He urged his horse onto the long slope where the snow lay unbroken. The child stirred and whimpered. We're doing fine, Beth. We're almost there, the doctor said. Sister Magdalen will put you in a soft bed, and you can go right to sleep. It hurts, doctor. I know it does, honey. Hang on now. Beth had been a great little soldier. For nearly two hours he had ridden with her, down from a cabin that was inaccessible by car. Why these fellows with families wanted to live off in the wilds, he'd never know. But there were too many of them to wonder about any more. Even their wives, having babies in the dead of winter, would stay at home until the doctor was frantic about them, and when there was a case of appendicitis, like Bess. Johnny met him at the hospital door. All right, you take her, the doctor said. I'm about whipped. Her father met me at the road with a horse, and when I came back out, the snow was so slippery, I figured I'd make better time if I stayed on Dobbin. He's out there on the drive. You take care of him when you get a chance, uh, Johnny? Sure thing, doctor said Johnny. But there was a good deal to do, and Johnny forgot about the horse. So the tired beast, tied western fashion, with the reins hanging to the ground, stood on three legs while the snow melted over his wet sides, and the fourth foot, bent under to rest, was soon lost under a small, driven mound. Marmion came back to consciousness in a dream. Her bed was floating away with her, the pillow moved under her head. And then she realized that someone was carrying her, that the pillow was a shoulder, and finally that the shoulder belonged to Dr. Kingston. But why was he carrying her downstairs instead of up to the crow's nest? 
she was not alarmed until he reached the main floor and instead of turning towards the patient's rooms where he would be taking her if she were hurt he continued on down fully awake she began to struggle but the powerful arms held her easily down here were the boiler room the dark and vacant little room where big boston cassidy at the end of his crusade had lain awaiting gus omley the undertaker the deserted kitchen the other closed door behind which jock's packed suitcase still remained please let me go marmion begged the doctor was at the bottom of the stairs the black open door of the pharmacy immediately beside them no she cried be quiet he carried her inside holding her with one arm he threw shut the lower half of the door found the hook and pushed it into the hasp swung the top half tight shut and hooked it only then did he turn on the light and release the girl the change in him was shocking marmee had seen him contemptuous defiant sullen but now it seemed that the darkness of this weird night had crept into his very soul he looked at her but she wondered if he saw her she would know in a moment without taking her eyes off him she backed a step to the door let her fingers slip along to the lower hook she could never open both halves the lower would be enough if she could open it quickly and duck out leave it alone marmion snatched her hand away from the hook and then surprisingly as though he trusted her to obey him the doctor turned his back on her and sat down at the work counter under the window come here marmion she moved felt her clothes sticky against her and glanced down the whole front of her uniform was bright red i'm hurt no you had a bottle of blood in your hand when you fainted it broke king got up opened a drawer took out a clean gown and tossed it to her he perched on the stool again his back to her she slipped out of the uniform and into the long gown marmion the doctor said slowly marmion do you know what prison is walls walls of stone walls of estrangement from the world there are no gates in them heavily he turned on the stool she had rolled up the long sleeves folded her arms over a voluminous pleat in the gown the neck of it showed one thin young collarbone shadowed by soft hair she didn't feel like a madonna she looked at king with misery in her blue eyes in fear and bewilderment walls he repeated you get to want them you know for their shelter you're safe in them until you're turned out in the pause there was no sound whatever of life anywhere in the old walls if i had it to do now i'd kill her marmion stared at him the stickiness was coming through from her other clothes into the clean gown but that was a strange thing to be thinking while a man was speaking to her regretfully of a murder he had not committed her name was angel angel she had the blackest heart the devil ever contrived come to the beach with me she said on the white sand under the palm trees we'll forget that the blue ocean is the highway of war forget that you are ashore without leave our importance to each other far exceeds any surgeon's duty to his shipmates the captain had a smaller idea of my importance he sailed without me you know what the navy calls that jumping ship they don't like it the doctor shook his head slowly she wasn't like you you're sweet you pity me right now even though you're afraid of me i'm not a f angel lived up to her name for twenty-four hours but then she had to leave me i found out afterward that she had a date with someone else on the white sand under the palm trees when i sobered up they said it was a week later she was gone and i was in jail 
If I'd killed her, I'd have saved a long parade of other poor devils the same misery. She didn't want us, or our money, nothing but our sanity. I should have destroyed her. She's malignant. His lips finished the sentence noisily. He had been speaking almost as a bystander who had seen all this nightmare happen and not been touched by it himself. But he was as grey a face as Lazarus when the winding sheets fell away from him in the tomb. I didn't see her again until four years ago. She came here pretending to be a patient. She had me in a good position for blackmail. But she didn't demand it. She didn't have to. By then she knew that Jock had a gold mine. King laughed without pleasure, shortly. When she turned up a month ago, I should have killed her. The telephone rang sharply. He looked at it until it rang again with an insistence that warned of emergency. Muttering under his breath, the doctor went to answer. Marmion was benumbed by fear that suspended time. He might have stood a minute or an hour with his back to her, talking. His excitement told her that some new incident must have taken place. If she were to scream now, the person at the other end of the wire would hear. He would come, or send someone to her rescue. Her throat was constricted and dry, too parched for even a whisper. And then she heard it again, the soft hissing of the snake in the nightmare, when she had stood half-fainting in the room where Big Balsam Cassidy was choking to death. She was not dreaming now. She spun around in the direction of the sound, and at the same moment the radiator clanked. Of course, the steam was coming on. The man substituting for Pussyfoot in the boiler room was sending up heat to combat the early chill. So that was what she had heard in Cassidy's room, the memory that had tormented her for the past four days. Weak with relief, Marmion leaned against the workbench, watching the radiator as if she expected it to give some indication of agreement. The heat would feel good, but there had been no need for heat on the night Big Balsam died. The day had been warm. It was not the radiator that had given off the hissing sound, the hissing she had not heard until after the door had opened and the unknown person had come into the room. The doctor, she saw, had come back and was standing before her in silence. She didn't realize that it was the silence of shock. She clutched the bench behind her for support. What was it? she whispered. The sheriff. The old preacher is dead. God in heaven, what can I do? Marmion shook her head dumbly. The sound, the hissing, I heard it in the dark that night. King was staring at her, and she stumbled on. After the person came in, I'm sure I didn't hear it before. It started up and I fainted. Doctor, what could it have been? The doctor's eyes were upon her, hypnotic as the snakes in the dream. For an eternal minute he held her that way, incapable of movement or thought. Then he gave a long sigh. So you did know. But I didn't. I don't yet. The oxygen tank, he said wearily. It was turned off in order to make Cassidy's death certain when the lung quit, but it had to be on again, everything normal, before help came. His voice fell to a hoarse whisper. Marmion watched him drop to the stool where he had sat before, flip a piece of paper into the typewriter he used for writing prescription labels, and then begin to peck at the keys with two fingers. He was not excited. He appeared, rather, to be on the edge of despair. Doctor! King frowned. 
I'm sure, now, I'll have to do this. It's the only way. Don't talk to me, Marmion. The girl remained very still. She could see what he was writing, even read it. I confess that on the night of October 20th I caused the death of Michael James Cassidy. The type blurred. There was more, but she need not read it. Jock's name would be on the page, later, and then her own. The doctor knew now what she had known from the beginning, and her testimony would be damning. She had never thought of King as the murderer. All her fears had been of Ellie, her best friend, or of an unidentified Eleanor Anne. Never King. Barely breathing, she held herself tightly erect. She would have to try, at least try, to get away. When the faint tapping came at the door, the man did not turn. Oh, don't hear it, King, don't, Marmion pleaded silently. Let me back away from you, step by step. Don't tap too loudly, whoever you are. Don't draw his attention. Stealthily, her eyes never leaving the hulking white figure, she crossed the room. Now she was in the shadow. She could open the lower door, if only the hook didn't stick. It scraped lightly, coming out of the hasp. The doctor did not hear. He finished the page and ripped the paper out of the typewriter. That's it. Now she can sign it, Angel or Eleanor or... Abruptly he turned. He was alone in the pharmacy. The lower half of the door stood open. Oh, Ellie, I didn't know it was you, Marmion whispered in the hall. How did you know I was here? Where... Marmy, there's no time. I saw King carry you down here, and he looked lethal. And then I saw her upstairs with a splash of blood on her uniform. Eloise made herself pause for a steadying breath. Her red hair was dull in the shadowed passage, her profile cameo white as she lifted her head, listening. There were footsteps above. Swiftly, her strong fingers in a bruising hold, she pushed Marmion around the bend in the old corridor. The kitchen was black dark. She dragged Marmion in, shut the door behind them. It was like being in a vault that smelled of cooked onions and soup. Ellie, who? Don't ask questions. You've got to get upstairs. There's a deputy in the front entrance. Marmy, you'll have to get out of here quick. The door is bolted, but you can open it. Then run around outside to the front. But you, Ellie. I'll stay here and distract her for a minute. I know she's following me. Run. It's your life. Marmion was too panic-stricken to argue. With her hands out before her in the dark, she crossed the kitchen, found the doorknob and the bolt, opened the door and stumbled up the area steps. The snow was instantly cold on her feet, tiny chills of it dotting her face and arms. But she was out. She was free. And then, down in the darkness of the kitchen, she heard the footsteps. Lacking caution, running, now out on the steps. "'Ellie!' she called. Even as she spoke, she knew it was not Eloise. This was the one who had come into Cassidy's room, been able to work so quietly and efficiently in the dark, because the apparatus was familiar. The one who had listened and waited for Marmion to recognize the remembered sound of the oxygen hissing out of the tank. Sam had blundered upon it. I thought he just didn't get enough oxygen, Sam had said. But still she had not retained the memory. The instant of hesitation had been too long. The steps were muffled now in snow. Marmion caught a glimpse of a white figure. Then she ran on into the storm. She couldn't see where she was going, sliding and slipping by some miracle keeping her feet. Run around to the front door, Elliot said. 
the sheriff's man is there but how could she find direction in the blinding moving night she veered to the left felt the ground slanting and nearly fell the pursuer was gaining on her the flight was a nightmare in which marmion ran in a treadmill the same snow falling before her and the same wet stony hillside under her feet if only that silent one would cry out scream or gasp or make any human sound but all she heard was her own painful struggle for breath the wall of the hospital was close beside her now turn again to the left she hesitated for a split second and fingers curled into claws raked down her back marmion gave a terrified scream and her feet skidded from under her she fell a wrist twisting painfully pain did not matter in another moment those raking fingers would be at her throat she screamed again and miraculously there was an answer a man's shout from out on the drive she did not recognize the voice help called to her somewhere within reach frantically she fought away from her attacker a fight that was easier because a man had shouted the white figure was up as soon as marmion but not running simply standing there in indecision new voices were shouting now someone thundered around the building from the direction marmion had come and the indecisive figure whirled that was the first time there was a sound the girl did not recognize any voice she ever had heard the hoarse terrible gasping the instant was very short running desperately fast the white wrath fled in the only direction unguarded around to the front of the hospital dr hamlin's horse drooping away from the storm gave a sudden startled snort the sheriff was near enough to see something like an enormous white bat spring to the animal's back rearing and plunging he tried to dislodge that clinging thing when he could not he started on a dead run in the only direction that did not blind him heading away from the wind good lord the rimrock the sheriff shouted the doctor lumbered out from the protecting wall of the hospital almost under the striking hoofs don't try to stop him the sheriff yelled he'll kill you the horse pitched violently narrowly missing the crouching man and bolted into the curtain of snow they knew later that the beast plunging pell-mell to the edge of the rimrock set his legs stiffly for there were long skid marks in the slush they heard a scream the terrified scream of a horse stampeding to its death then there was the awful thudding fall down the broad face of the cliff and nothing more the flakes were already covering the skid marks when the men ran up the white rider had gone over the cliff still clinging to the horse's back marmion sat in the snow crying hysterically palms flat over her ears i can't hear it i can't i can't she kept sobbing long after there was only silence over by the rimrock it had seemed to her that it was eloise she had seen in that ghastly glimpse as she fell ellie whose hair would look dark plastered wet to her head she didn't question his fortuitous arrival when sam dropped down beside her pulled off his coat and wrapped her in it then picked her up as easily as king when he found her on the lab floor there now baby you're all right it's all over oh sam marmion groaned who was it that doesn't matter does it said sam over on the crown of the rim rock the sheriff and the doctor stood looking down into moving white we can't go this way the sheriff said doc you'll have to come with me around the long road you'd better go in and get a coat 
They both knew there was no need to hurry. There was no sound from below. In King's pocket, the confession was a wadded paper. She had not signed it by any of the names she could have used. Angel, or Ellen, or Anne, or Lynn. She had not signed it at all. End of chapter 13